Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. There are a lot of flight attendants out there saying, I love this job, but I love this job and I know the worth of my job and I know my worth and I'm willing to fight for it. There may be turbulence ahead as airlines and flight attendants buckle up for new contract negotiations. It's Thursday, February 15th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, a union head on flight attendance demands, and a lot of Gazans are struggling just to survive, but they're also trying to keep Palestinian culture alive. I see this connection to Tzatziris as a way for me to connect with my cultural identity in a way that exceeds this time, place, space, and connects me with where my family is from and who I really am. First, though, Customs and Border Protection says the number of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border dropped by 50% last month. And while winter usually sees an ebb of migration, that January drop is a surprise because numbers were at the highest levels ever in December. So what's going on? We called up the Washington Post's Arelis Hernandez to find out. She spoke to Scott Tong. So in December, border officials encountered over 240,000 people. That's the record. In January, it was half of that. Plus, there was a huge drop in illegal crossings by Venezuelans. When, when you step back, why are we seeing this decrease? We don't know all the reasons, but one thing's for sure that U.S. officials have spent a lot of time talking to Mexico about stepping up their role in stopping people from reaching the U.S.-Mexico border. And so what you mean visibly, even from the U.S. side, you can see there's a much more aggressive presence of U.S. of Mexican National Guard, mm. of even some private security folks who are stopping migrants, pulling them off of buses headed northward or on trains or stopping them from even reaching uh, the port of entry. Yeah. I mean, could one reason for the decline, I am speak, speaking to you from, from much further north, be new border enforcement by the Biden administration or talking Congress about tougher enforcement rules? Potentially, right? Potentially the, also cartels who, criminal organizations that dictate a lot of this movement uh, could have simply moved folks away from Texas, uh, figuring that it wasn't, you know, the business opportunity that they were looking for or simply meant, you know, the, the, the politics are such that they're moving folks because there are crossings happening over in uh, in California and Arizona and New Mexico. Um, part of this are, are normal shifts that happen. Uh, it's also winter. It's not always the, the greatest time to cross. So mm. it, it's, you know, it's politics between us and, and Mexico. It's the cartels and figuring out what their best strategy is. Could be, you know, that they are deterred by some of the enforcement actions that are happening mm -hmm. in Texas, that it's too much of an opportunity cost for them um, to risk being arrested in Texas. That would give sure. Governor Abbott some, mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. credit there. 
Yeah, and, and just to understand uh, the, the numbers, is this the number of times uh, Customs and Border Protection uh, apprehend a person? That's where these numbers come from? The way that that works is encounters actually means uh, the, the the one encounter with that individual. It could be a person who's you know tried several times, oh, um, mm. but each unique encounter it represents a, a one in in the numbers. Mm, okay, as this is happening, the Washington Post is reporting the federal government has drafted plans to release thousands of people detained in federal facilities. Why? Well, uh, as my colleague Nick Maroff reported, they're facing a $700 million budget shortfall, which is the, the biggest that they've seen in, in recent memory. And so to, to try and close that gap, uh, they're looking to let go of these detainees, make space, um, reduce the, the amount of people that they're having to care for uh, in detention facilities. Yeah. Any details on where they would be released to? I would presume, and this happens all the time, just for your listeners, mm. uh, you know, that it would be released into the country or uh, released into deportation proceedings into ICE air, but that's also very, very expensive. So it mm. might be folks who don't pose maybe the biggest threat to the country that uh, be uh, released. But again, this happens from, from time to time as yeah. well. All right. And, and Aurelis, wait, less than a minute, uh, I see the busiest... Places for legal, illegal crossings last month was the region near Tucson, Arizona, as well as the region around San Diego. You're in San Antonio. What have you been seeing there as far as who's attempting to cross and why? Well, it's small groups of people in, in Texas right now. I've been talking to law enforcement all across the border here in Texas, and it, it's really just small groups of people. I think in Eagle Pass, which has been in the news, about 300, maybe mm-hmm. 400 a day. Um, but I imagine that people who are paying a lot of money are looking to be moved through yeah. Arizona or California where they have better chance. Mm. Arellas Hernandez covers immigration for The Washington Post. Arellas, thanks again. Thank you. Coming up next, you might remember yesterday we spoke with the CEO of United Airlines and asked him about upcoming contract talks with flight attendants. Well, today we're hearing from the union representing some flight attendants about why they're picketing at major airports. Scott is clear for takeoff after the break. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Thousands of flight attendants picketed this week at more than 30 airports, including L.A., New York, Miami, and Dallas. They're trying to pressure airline management to boost wages and improve working conditions. At Alaska Airlines, flight attendants voted yesterday to pursue a strike, but that's just a first step. There are rules and restrictions before flight attendants can actually walk off the job. For an update, we have union rep Sarah Nelson on the line. She's international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. So your group represents flight attendant unions at working at several airlines. Briefly on the talks with management, what are the big sticking points? We do know the union at Southwest rejected in December a proposal with some increases in pay and benefits and per diem. Yes. So in 2020, pretty much across the board, all work groups in aviation were set to go back into negotiations. This is after almost 20 years of austerity following 9-11, the Mm. bankruptcies that destroyed a lot of the aviation jobs. And so we had just barely caught up with where we were prior to 9-11 in 2020 with the negotiations that had taken place to that point. But we had not pushed the careers forward. And of course, the pandemic slowed all of that down. So now we're in a place where in some cases, flight attendants haven't seen a raise in five years. And these negotiations have been left languishing because under the Railway Labor Act, contracts do not expire like they do under the NLRA in negotiations that you saw this year at UPS Mm -hmm. or uh, with the United Auto Workers and the big three. That doesn't happen in the airline industry. These contracts become amendable. They do not expire. They uh, oftentimes, negotiations go on a long time. And in this case, the pandemic extended that even further. But last year, the pilots got between 35 and 50% increases in pay. We're talking about massively moving forward here. This is on par with what you saw at, for example, UPS and um, in the auto industry. So am I hearing, sorry to jump in, that that, uh, pay, is pay, wages, salary at the center of what the unions are asking for? Yes, we have not substantially gotten into economics with the airlines. So these negotiations have been going on for a long time. There are a lot of issues that matter to people in negotiations. But where the sticking point is, is around economics. Understand. And as far as talk, efforts to move potentially toward strikes, it takes a lot of steps. But do you sense the flight attendant unions are aligned to potentially jointly say, you know, we're all going to move in that direction? Well, look, we we did something that was historic on Tuesday. We all picketed together. This is flight attendants from across the industry, never been done before. And really what we're doing is we're saying to the industry, we expect to advance our careers across the industry, and we're standing together to do that. We're going to make you compete to the highest standards, just like you did with the pilots. So, yes, we're backing each other up. The contracts are a little bit different, so the, the proposals may not look exactly the same in wording. But overall, the demands are the same. The demands are dramatic dramatically increasing the base pay, also getting paid for all of our time at work. So there Mm -hmm. are many hours during the day that flight attendants are at work and they're working for free. As flight attendants' days have gotten longer, we've been working more flights. These flights have more passengers than ever on them. There's fewer staffing with flight attendants. That boarding time has become one of the hardest parts of our day with incredible responsibilities, and we're not getting our hourly rate. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you about interest in the job. You're describing you know, some of the challenges of the flight attendant job. The recruitment site JobSeeker finds that, according to its numbers, the most popular dream job is flight attendant in the U.S. and several countries. So some evidence people really want to do this job. So why would management budge if they know there are others lining up to take these jobs? 
Let me tell you why. I think that this is very much related to the working class worldwide understanding our worth. There are a lot of flight attendants out there saying, I love this job, but I love this job and I know the worth of my job and I know my worth and I'm willing to fight for it. And so that's why you're seeing 99% strike votes Mm -hmm, backing mm -hmm. up those demands, making it very clear to management that, yes, we may love to do this work, but we're not going to do it for free. You're not going to exploit the passion that we have for the work that we do. Mm -hmm. You're going to pay us for the worth that we enjoy and that we also give and, and create the profits at the airlines. And we expect to share in that. Yeah. Understand. And, and before we go, uh, the Labor Department says the average flight attendant annual wage, there's a big variance, is $56,000. That's according, again, to the Department of Labor. Sarah Nelson is international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Sarah, thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from two Palestinians who are living abroad about how they and their loved ones are getting by and will learn how for one of them practicing a form of traditional Palestinian embroidery has taken on new significance during the war stick around this message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. This message comes from NPR sponsor Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, which believes plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull landscapes into colorful, vital spaces for work and play. Available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Or learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor KeyBank. At KeyBank, they believe in delivering for their clients. Whatever the economic turn, KeyBank is primed to collaborate and help create solutions tailored to your ideas and your vision. With nearly 200 years of banking experience, they know a lot about being a trusted advisor. And whether you're managing growth, seeking solutions, or improving your bottom line, KeyBank is ready to be yours. KeyBank opens doors. Learn more at key.com advisor. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. A few days after Hamas attacked Israel in October, we spoke to Jason Shawa a U.S. citizen who grew up in Gaza and who was living in Gaza City when Israeli bombs started to fall. He and his family fled south, and in November, he was able to cross into Egypt, thanks to his American passport. At first, the State Department said only he could go, because his wife and two daughters are not American citizens. But eventually, they all got out and joined him in Cairo. Well, we're checking back in with Jason today to hear how he and his family are doing and what their story might tell us about the increasingly common experience for Palestinians of being stuck between an uneasy life abroad 
and a war back home. Here's Scott. What was it like, Jason, to cross the border and get out? Do you remember clearly what that was like? Yeah, well, the whole thing is kind of uh, hazy in my mind. Mm. But uh, the drive from uh, Zawaida, which we were staying, to the border is something like uh, half an hour. There was lots of bombing. We were quite afraid. So, so you were in the vehicle as there were explosions around you on the way to the border? Yes, yes. I mean, there are strikes and explosions going on all over the Gaza Strip all the time. So we didn't know what to expect, really. We didn't know what the situation was at the border crossing. Mm. But we did manage to get there safely. And uh, eventually we did uh, get into Egypt after like hours. Can I ask you, Jason, about what happened when you got to Egypt and you tried to get around, you tried to find shelter? Did you find yourself welcomed by the people or no? Actually, yes. The popular support for Palestinians in Gaza here in Egypt is quite overwhelming. Wherever we go, and as soon as they detect our accent and know we're from Gaza, Uber drivers on more than one occasion refuse to charge us. People at uh, grocery stores would try uh, to not, uh, you know, charge us. Really? It happened, uh, yeah, on so many occasions. That's, of course, only on the popular support. Official support is uh, not so good. I understand, but, yeah. So what now, what, what is your family doing? You, your wife, or your daughters in school? Yes, we, we managed to get our daughters in school, which was a difficult task because we don't have residency here in Egypt. And the main thing was to get them occupied and uh, get to know kids their own age. And they're coping. Kids are quite resilient. Yeah. You told us back in October that one of your daughters asked you, what are they going to do to us? Are they going to kill us? Remind us what you told her. Both daughters kept asking this question, and it's it's a very difficult question because we basically, myself, my wife, had to keep lying, telling them that the Israeli army isn't targeting civilians, which is a blatant lie because, I mean, civilians are the majority of the casualties, especially children and women. And we know so many people, so many friends that were killed personal friends, members of our extended family who were killed for no reason. They're just people who were in their homes and got struck by an Israeli missile and and were killed. So we just kept lying to them and assuring them that the Israeli army isn't targeting us. And they used to buy it for a short period of time, but Mm. then they'd go back and ask again. It was difficult. Yeah. Uh, no, Jason, I'm so sorry to yeah. hear and hear about so many people you you lost. Everybody in Gaza lost somebody they love. Every single person. I can say that with certainty. Yeah. Mm. And can I ask you um, what it was like for you, your wife, your daughters, when you slept on a bed for the first time, when you had a shower for the first time in surely months? Yeah. Yes. It was quite an event uh, for all of us. Uh, The shower was really something. My youngest uh, daughter, Malek, after she took her first shower, asked her mom if we can take a shower every day in this shower. She 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 couldn't believe it. And the same goes for beds, real beds with a mattress on them, blankets, pillows. It was quite a a transition, I mean, from the conditions we were in to where we are now. Yeah, of course. How were were you sleeping when you were on the run in Gaza? In Gaza, we used to sleep, basically, all of us used to sleep on the floor. 
We just literally slept on the tile with no blankets, no pillows, no nothing. There were just five mattresses, which we allocated for the five elderly people we had and the kids, the mm. 22 children. We just, you know, managed some pieces of cloth, blankets, coats, whatever we had on us and, and had them sleep on them. Mm. And bit by bit, we managed to buy mattresses, buy blankets. So your life is some version of normal compared to your relatives, your friends, the people who are still in Gaza. Do you experience some version of survivor guilt? I mean, you have this U.S. passport, which allowed you to get out. We do. We do. Both my wife and I, we had a hard time coping with the fact that we were able to leave and we had to leave so many friends behind, 60 people or so. When we had to leave them, it was very emotional. Everybody was crying. And we had to grapple with that on a daily basis, this feeling of guilt that we were able to leave because I have a foreign passport and they don't. And most of them are still stuck in Gaza. Yeah. You know, I wonder how you think about your U.S. citizenship. You're a dual citizen. Of course, this U.S. passport allowed you to get out. Yes. But do you feel conflicted given the U.S. is the closest, deepest-pocketed ally of Israel? I do, I do. I mean, it, it saddens me when I when I see the level of support uh, for what Israel is doing by the president, by the secretary of state, by the whole government. It's frankly, it, it's shameful. Everybody is seeing what's happening uh, on live television. People literally massacred. Nobody can deny that. Hmm. And yet they fully back them, arm them. It's shameful. I, sometimes to people I meet when they ask me, how did you get out? I do not reveal that I got out on a U.S. passport. Mm -hmm. Would you consider moving to the U.S.? I mean, we discussed it, my wife and I, several times, but neither of us really wants to. It just doesn't really sit right with us. Although I have family there. My mother lives in the States, my mm -hmm. sister, my brother. Maybe at a later stage when things calm down, we'll see. Mm -hmm. Jason, finally, can ask if when you close your eyes, if there is an enduring image that stays with you of what you went through in Gaza that reminds you of where you were? Well, I mean, I think of a lot of things, but positive things. I always uh, think of our house, our beautiful house, which is, uh, has been significantly damaged mm. or it's non-existent. Now, we don't really know. Uh, the second thing was uh, an image of uh, an old man who passed away, a relative who was staying with us. And we had to transport the body to the hospital and an ambulance came by and there was a, a young boy, I don't know, 10 years old. They pulled him out of the ambulance. Uh, he was shouting and bleeding. And, and then the ambulance worker, the other uh, guy, came out after his colleague who was carrying the boy, carrying his leg. Uh, that was one of the horrible images that will always stay with me. My goodness, Jason, uh, what an image, what an image to remember about what you went through. Do you think about returning to Gaza now or later, or is it too early for that? I do, of course, uh, constantly. We all do, especially the girls. But of course, it's not doable currently. But as soon as the assault is, is over with and uh, hopefully a, a sustained ceasefire is reached, I will probably go down first, check on our home. Then maybe we'll be able to think clearer once we know that it's over. 
Jason Shawa is a Palestinian-American translator. He managed to leave Gaza with his family and find refuge in Cairo. Jason, please accept our condolences and our regards to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, sadly, many of the things that Jason Shawa described are nothing new for Palestinians, a people who've been forcibly moved around the Middle East since 1948. But many are more conscious now than ever of the need to preserve their culture and identity. And one way they're trying to do that is by learning and preserving the ancient Palestinian embroidery called tatriz. Look up a photo when you can, if you're not familiar with tatriz. It uses colorful thread intricately stitched into culturally significant motifs like olive trees and pomegranates. You can often find it on women's clothing, where it once communicated things like where its wearer was from and whether they have children. Wafa Ghanem has researched the history of Tatriz and embroidered some herself. She's currently a research fellow at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and she told Robin Young that Tatriz has also been used as a form of resistance against the Israeli occupation. I would say after 1948 and the creation of Israel, there was this initial sort of period, decade, where Palestinian women were thinking in the refugee camps after exile, displacement, or whatever their condition was, that they were returning home soon. They saw it as a sort of temporary condition. So we don't see a lot of embroidery being produced for wear at that time. But by the 1960s, when things are starting to um, sort of increasingly get worse, uh, the conditions in the refugee camps camps, just the condition of the Palestinian people as a whole in exile, we start to see embroidery being expressed as a way to show national identity and a greater unity in the community, regardless of of where that Palestinian originated from. And by the 1960s, 1970s, we start to see an interesting framing happening in Palestinian communities and diaspora where they're stitching traditionally uh, with traditional motifs on their dress in traditional technique and uh, showcasing that as a resistance to cultural erasure and cultural appropriation and ultimately this sort of perspective and experience that if they do not do this and they do not continue this tradition that it will be lost or it will be appropriated. Well, for instance, if the Palestinian flag was banned, in a certain area, women might stitch it into their clothing. Um, but so now you have war on the heels of other conflicts. We understand it's fallen away. Uh, people are busier with modern concerns, but also, you know, daily survival. So if it was passed on from grandmother to mother to daughter, how, how are you hoping that it will be kept alive now? It is true. There's this sort of broken chain in passing this art form down because of war, because of displacement, because of dispossession, not just land dispossession, but cultural dispossession. And part of my work has been to reinvigorate that interest in the diaspora as a means of not only expressing our cultural identity, but also as a way of documenting our history on our dress through this visual language. Yeah. What has this meant for you, Tatris, in your life? And can you think of a favorite piece? I learned embroidery from my mother, Faria Al-Abbas-Ghanim, and she is a Palestinian embroiderer, and she has been teaching in the United States since the 1980s. So, of course, naturally, she taught it to her daughters. 
I don't remember a time in my life that I didn't help my mother with her totoris or practice it on my own. To me, this is a way for me to connect to who I am and who my mother is, even in an environment, a political kind of environment in the United States where my identity is stigmatized and it's often misunderstood and in many ways is very much dehumanized as just another number and just another sort of a casualty and and all of the losses. And so I see this connection to Tiltaris as a way for me to connect with my cultural identity in a way that exceeds this time, place, space, and connects me with where my family is from and who I really am. And lately, I've been very interested in the dresses of specifically Gaza. They didn't always have a lot of embroidery in their dress traditionally, historically, in Gaza. So I've really loved looking at their bold colors in, in the fabrics that they've worn. Is there one that you could describe? So there's this one dress specifically I'm thinking about where they used hot pink embroidery and the dress is from the early 20th century. So I just, my imagination runs wild. It's like, who was this woman to put this hot pink embroidery was so flashy and bold. May I also say as well that I think looking at each of these dresses and thinking about who the woman was that made it, who she might have was, where her personality is being expressed in this dress beyond just this regional fashion that existed, helps us to look at Palestinians as not just these numbers populating and death tolls, they're real people where these dresses really, they were cut specifically to their bodies for special occasions or for daily wear, and they were known in that dress in their community. And it just gives so much richness to who we are and, and our identities as individuals and as a collective. That's Wafa Ghanem, research fellow at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, curator for the Museum of the Palestinian People in Washington, D.C., on the Palestinian art of Tatriz. Wafa, thank you so much. Thank you. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WVUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Gabrielle Healy, Sam Rapelson, Adeline Sear, and Hafsa Qureshi. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Michaela Varela. Mike also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. 
Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. On this week's Wildcard, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wildcard podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation.